Hello and welcome to this Herbert Smith Freehills podcast. I'm Maura McIntosh and I'm a professional support consultant in the litigation team in London. And I have with me Damien Grave, who's a disputes partner based in our Melbourne office, and Greg Rowan, who's a disputes partner based in London. The three of us are the general editors of Class Actions in England and Wales, which is a textbook published by Sweet and Maxwell, which has just gone into its second edition, which was published late this September. All of the book's authors are Herbert Smith Freehill's lawyers, and many have been involved in some of the largest and most high-profile class actions in this jurisdiction. So in today's podcast, Damien Gregg and I will be discussing the evolving landscape for class actions in England and Wales. This is the first in a series of podcasts we'll be releasing to mark the launch of the second edition, looking at particular topics of interest relating to class actions or areas where we expect to see growth. So please keep an eye out for others in the series. So, Greg, um, when we published our first edition uh, back in 2018, we said there'd been an increased focus on class actions in this jurisdiction in the previous few years with some very high profile claims going through the courts. And at that time, there was also a lot of attention being given to the opt out regime for competition claims in the Competition Appeal Tribunal that had been introduced in 2015. So can you comment on how you think the landscape has developed in the intervening four years? Thanks, Maura. And hi, everyone. Yes, I'd say there's been a steady increase in the number of claims being brought and also in the general prominence of this sort of litigation. We've seen particularly significant growth in the number of competition claims being brought under the regime you mentioned. And that follows the Supreme Court's decision in the Merricks and MasterCard case a couple of years ago, which really smoothed the way for those sorts of claims. Outside the competition space, it's not been explosive growth but we've certainly seen a gradual increase and a number of very high profile cases. Thanks. Uh, yeah, we'll, we'll come back to talk about some of the high profile cases, uh, both in this podcast and in future editions. But just to pick up the point about growth. So one challenge I always think in, in commenting on the extent to which class actions are increasing is the real lack of hard data or or even a clear definition as to what amounts to a class action in this jurisdiction. Uh, do you want to comment on that? Well, so far as the competition regime is concerned, the position is is very clear. Uh, There's a set procedure under which the proposed claimant applies for a collective proceedings order, a CPO, and the relevant information is published on the CATS website, and it's all very easy to track. Outside that context, it's actually much less clear cut. Um, There's a list of group litigation orders or GLOs that's published on the gov.uk website but we found that that's not always completely up to date. And anyway, there are many cases in which large numbers of similar claims are brought by multiple claimants, and the cases are managed in a similar way to a GLO, but without a formal GLO being put in place. And I think that seems to be a growing trend, and it makes it particularly difficult to get clear statistics on the number of class actions that are going through the courts at any one time. There's also no record of the number of claims that are brought using the representative action procedure under CPR 19. Uh, That, of course, gained some notoriety in the Lloyd and Google case, which we're going to come back to. But certainly I'd say that there's been a steady increase in class actions and that the interest and activity in this area is showing no sign of declining. Thanks. So apart from the competition regime, which will be the subject of a, a future podcast, can you talk us through how class actions are typically brought in the English courts? Yes, the main mechanism in England and Wales is the group litigation order, the GLO procedure that I mentioned. 
Um, the GLO is essentially a case management tool that allows similar claims to be managed together. The basic requirement for it is that there are a number of claims that give rise to common or related issues of fact or law. Now, there's no requirement that the common issues predominate over the individual issues that arise in each claim. But generally speaking, a GLO is most likely to be granted where a significant number of claims arise from a single event or issue. And that might be a major environmental incident or, or something that has caused a drop in share values or something of that sort. The claimants all have to issue claims and be named on the claim form. Um, so it's what's known as an opt-in regime. Uh, that's in contrast to the competition regime that I've mentioned, which allows claims to be brought on behalf of anyone who falls within a defined class and importantly, without them taking any steps to join the litigation or even being named in it. And that sort of opt-out mechanism has obvious advantages from a claimant perspective and from the perspective of those funding the action, um, really because it makes it much easier to get a large class action off the ground. In many cases, there'll be lots of individuals who are party to an opt-out claim, but have no idea that it even exists. And again, that's really what we're seeing at the moment in the competition space. Thanks for that explanation. So the other form of opt-out procedure that exists in England and Wales is the representative action under CPR Part 19, which you mentioned earlier and which, of course, was used in Lloyd and Google. Can you tell us about that case and why it was important? Yes, the, the representative action procedure allows a claim to be brought by a representative claimant on behalf of all of those with the same interest in the claim. And as you say, it's an opt-out procedure because the represented parties don't have to be joined to the action or even identified. The procedure has existed for, for many years, but it hasn't really been widely used because the courts have generally adopted a strict interpretation to the same interest requirement. So that generally it was thought that the procedure couldn't be used to bring a damages action as damages will almost invariably depend on claimants' individual circumstances. Um, in Lloyd and Google, the claimant attempted to use the procedure to bring a data privacy claim against Google on behalf of a class of more than 4 million UK resident iPhone users. And the claimant tried to get round the same interest problem by claiming damages on a uniform or, or if you like, a tariff basis for the loss of control of data. And importantly, there was no reliance on class members' individual circumstances. The claim went all the way to the Supreme Court and ultimately it failed because um, in November last year, the court held that under the relevant legislation, proof of material damage was required and the claimant couldn't meet that requirement simply by pointing to the unlawful processing of data. But for our purposes, the interesting point is that the Supreme Court left the door open to using the representative action procedure for damages actions. It said that there could be a bifurcated process. And the gist of that is that the representative action procedure is used to determine common issues, um, such as whether there's been an actionable breach, leaving any individual issues, such as damages, to be dealt with subsequently. Um, that could, in effect, introduce a halfway house between a fully opt-out claim and an opt-in procedure, such as the group litigation order, since individual claimants would presumably only have to be identified once the common issues have been determined. 
That bifurcated process sounds a very interesting possibility, but of course we haven't seen any claims actually being brought on that basis since the Supreme Court's decision, uh, so far as I'm aware. Uh, Could you comment on why that might be the case? No, I I think that's true. And I think the real difficulty here is likely to be funding. Um, It's not usually going to be in the interests of a litigation funder to finance the initial representative action stage since that won't itself lead to a pot of damages for the funder to share in. Um, The damages only come on at the second stage, but even um, if a funder has financed the first stage, there'd be nothing to stop the claimants going to other funders then, and they may even be able to offer cheaper deals as they wouldn't have the costs of the first stage to recoup. Um, It's effectively, um, if you call it a, a free rider problem. So the headline, I think, is that While the whole area is one to watch, there are some obvious challenges in the way of such claims getting off the ground. Thanks. Um, So we've talked about the ways in which a class action can be brought in England and Wales. What about the areas we think are likely to be most significant, apart from competition that we've touched on? Damien, can can you talk us through some of the key areas? Sure. Thanks, Maura. Hi, everyone. There are a number of areas that we think are particularly significant for class actions in this jurisdiction and are likely to see continued growth. Generally, they are the areas that we've devoted individual chapters to in the book. So in the first edition, as well as a chapter on competition claims under the opt-out regime in the Competition Appeal Tribunal, we had separate chapters on shareholder actions and on environmental and human rights-based claims, particularly those brought against UK-based parent companies relating to the acts of their subsidiaries abroad. Other important areas where we've added new chapters for this edition include employment claims, and there have been an increasing number of equal pay claims in particular going through the system, as well as product liability cases, and of course, data protection, which was subject of the Lloyd and Google claim. It's fair to say, however, the data claims received a bit of a setback with the rejection of that claim by the Supreme Court, but they remain an important area given the ever-increasing importance of data and the increasing awareness of individuals as to their data protection rights. Not to mention, of course, the likelihood of huge numbers of individuals being affected when there is a data breach. Thanks, Damien. Um, I agree those are all important areas and uh, I I should say we're planning to cover all of them in in future editions of this podcast. I'm conscious that Australia, like the US, has a more developed class actions market than the UK, as it's had an opt-out procedure, of course, for many years, and also that trends that develop in the US and Australia often make their way to England and Wales eventually in the the class action space. So with that in mind, are there any trends you're seeing in Australia that you think listeners should be aware of? Yes, thanks, Maura. There are three trends I'd like to mention that we are seeing in Australia might be of interest to those dealing with class actions in the UK. The first is the ongoing debate we've been having in Australia around the regulation of funders. Pre-May 2021, which was the date of the federal election, it was clear that the government was focused on increasing statutory regulation of litigation funders, whether it be by way of introduction of a licensing regime or by other means. This led to uncertainty in the market and funders being more careful with the allocation of capital to cases or proposed cases. Post May 2021 and after the federal election and with the change of government, 
this regulation has been loosened and the landscape in this area has changed considerably with a more vibrant funding market and more cases being filed. This ongoing debate around the regulation of funders is not just occurring in the Australian market, but it's also something that's relevant on a global stage. Thanks. Yeah, that's definitely topical in the UK and Europe also. Uh, as, as many listeners will be aware, there's a, a proposed um, EU directive to regulate commercial third-party funding within the EU. Although that won't directly affect proceedings in England and Wales, it will apply to litigation funders who are based in the UK if they're funding proceedings in the EU. And just to summarise briefly, the proposals include a, an effective cap on funders' recovery of 40% of the claimant's damages, as well as restrictions on funders influencing decisions or, or taking control of proceedings. So I think it will be interesting to see whether those proposals are implemented um, in, in that form and and if they are, whether they'll have any impact on, on funders' appetite to support proceedings within the EU. So um, it, it's obviously a, a point of interest here as well. Uh, you mentioned other trends you're seeing in Australia, Damien. Yes, thanks, Maura. The second is the introduction of contingency fees in Victoria in July 2021. This was a new procedure that was introduced relatively recently. Even though England and Wales has permitted damages-based agreements since April 2013, they have not received broad acceptances yet in the market, either for group actions or other forms of litigation. The introduction in Victoria of the ability for plaintiff law firms to charge a contingency fee comprising a percentage of the dollar amount recovered, either by way of settlement or judgment of the court, has been a very significant development. Even though the jurisprudence is still evolving as to when a contingency fee or a group cost order, as it's called, will be made, it's already led to an increased number of class actions in the Supreme Court of Victoria. There is a lot of discussion as to whether the same regime will be introduced in other states and also at a federal level, which would indeed be a very significant development. This is something for us to keep an eye on more broadly as to how this develops here in Australia and may be relevant more broadly in other jurisdictions, including England and Wales. Uh, thanks. That, that is interesting. Um, as you say, damages-based agreements uh, received a pretty slow start in England and Wales, uh, I think because of the restrictive and rather unclear regulations that govern the regime. Some aspects have been clarified by case law more recently, so I think gradually they're gaining more acceptance, but it's, it's still very much a developing area, so it'll be interesting to see how it um, develops in Australia as well. Uh, so the third trend you wanted to mention? Yes, the third trend to keep an eye on is that we're seeing more shareholder class actions in Australia proceeding to trial and then judgment than has been the case in the past. It's still the case, of course, that a large majority of shareholder class actions filed to date in Australia have been settled in advance of trial and judgment. However, what we're seeing over the last four or five years is that there's been a number of cases that have been subject of judicial consideration by the courts and by appeal courts. There's also been a greater propensity for corporate defendants and their insurers to defend their position before the courts. The jurisprudence and the law around this area continues to develop. Um, however, it's something that we just need to keep an eye on moving forward. Thanks, Damien. Um, yeah, we will certainly discuss shareholder class actions in the English courts in, in more detail in a future edition, as obviously that's a, a major area of class actions risk for, for businesses. So that brings us to the end of our podcast. Uh, so thank you to both Greg and Damien and uh, to all of those listening. We'll be back after Christmas with further editions of the series.